Good morning. It's good to see each of you here today. And uh, today we will be taking time to consider a special message for Father's Day. It's something we rarely do. We don't feel like we're mandated to do this, but I thought with the life of our church, with many newly married people, with new people that have come in, and um, those that hope to be married and have children someday, that this might be fitting and a fitting reminder for each of us. The title of the message is A Father's High Calling. A Father's High Calling. And as I was considering this, I was thinking that there's really nothing that can fully prepare a young couple to have a child. There's one with a child right here. There's, there's really nothing that can fully prepare. You can study the Bible thoroughly, frontwards and backwards. You can read all the books on child training, but there's nothing that can really fully prepare you. And those of us where parents are shaking their head that, yes, that's true. Um, the Lord gives grace through all of this. But, um, you know, it's a life-changing experience. It changes the dynamic of your home forever. That now you have children in the home. And we need to realize, men, that, that the family is under attack today. That ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, Satan is going about trying to throw hand grenades, as it were, into families and to split them apart doing everything possible to split husband and wives apart so that children would grow up without a father or without a mother. We need to be wise unto the crafty schemes of the devil. And the devil has deceived many into thinking that pursuing pleasure or the mighty dollar is more important than the noble task of simply being a father in the home. In our culture, many fathers have checked out, ignoring their responsibility thinking that it's not really that important for them to be there. In fact, some of the statistics, and there's different groups that have done statistics, some say that the average father spends 20 minutes a day with their children. Others are 30 minutes a day. You know, it's whatever the percentage is, it is sad and it is grievous. I'm not undermining the fact that, yes, we need to go and provide and to protect, and we're out of the home for some period of time, but the importance of cultivating that time when you are in the home to be with your children is immensely important. Fatherhood is a huge blessing, especially for Christian men. Just think about it. You have somebody on loan to you. It's a stewardship. These children that you can instill godly values that you can help by God's grace to shape their worldview of how they're going to be productive in this fallen world. And so it's a huge blessing, but a huge responsibility that we have. And the Bible speaks much to the importance of training our children biblically. That that we would leave, as it were, a heritage. You see, once you're dead and gone, somebody might come and look at your tombstone for one or two generations, but it's what's been instilled into the heart of that child, hopefully a God-fearing Christian, that will live on. It's that heritage that will live on. And the Bible speaks much about descendants and the heritage, even looking at the lineage of Christ. So before we begin, I would just ask that we bow our heads and pray once again. Our Father, we just come before You once again, Lord. We confess our own neediness. We confess our own failures in in every sphere of the Christian life. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would be effective in our hearts today. Lord, that You would strengthen the families of this congregation. That You would strengthen the inward resolve of of the fathers in this congregation to stand up and fulfill their vital roles in the home. 
Lord, remove cares and distractions that this time would be profitable for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Fatherhood is a wonderful thing. Our brother read from Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are children, the children of one's use. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, the whole idea of Father's Day was something that was invented about a year ago or so. But the Bible has spoken of the high, noble calling of fatherhood since the very beginning. And so we don't need the culture to tell us that, oh, we need to honor fathers one time a year, but rather the Bible speaks very highly to this. One of the Puritans said, the father is a debtor to his child and owes him love, provision, and nurture. And the child is a debtor to his parent and owes him honor and obedience. In fatherhood, we should strive to be like our Heavenly Father. A one that, in which He is willing to love us. That He comes alongside loving us. That He is kind. That it's sacrificial. That he, that he has our good as the end goal. And so too, for earthly fathers, these things should be present in us. Now the Bible doesn't give a specific Formula, here, do one, two, three, and four, and you'll have perfect children, da-da-da-da-da. The Bible doesn't give exact formulas. There's books that have been written to say, follow this formula, you're guaranteed to have Christian children. No, but the Bible gives many biblical principles that we should listen to, pay close attention to, that we should study, and that we should apply in our individual families. And it's those biblical principles that will help shape the Christian home, even as we just sung in that wonderful hymn. Fatherhood, as I said, is a high calling, but it's one in which each of us who are fathers continues to see our own need of growth. My own need of growth. I'm not saying, oh, I've arrived, do this, this, this. No, no, no. I see my own weaknesses as a father. And by God's grace, I continue to seek to honor Him more and more. Now, some of you here aren't fathers yet. Some aren't even married yet. Well, there's something here for you and it's something you should be listening to so that you understand what will be expected of you should the Lord bring a wife. There's many practical lessons about biblical manhood that we'll be considering. So today's text, or today's outline actually, is just two very simple points. You don't even have to write them down. (laughs) A father's walk. Secondly, a father's talk. And there's going to be three sub-points under each of those. So first of all, a father's walk. Fathers are called to positively disciple and train their children. Colossians 3 says, do not exasperate your children so that they lose heart. That's the barriers. Those are the guardrails. Do not exasperate them so that they lose heart. Ephesians 6 says, rather, if you want to turn there for a minute, 6.4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The idea of nourishing implies something of a tenderness, something of a gentleness, not harsh behavior, but a a nourishing, something that's gentle. One lexicon says it's the whole training and education of children that relates to, get this, the cultivation of the mind and of the morals. Fathers, you are responsible for the souls of your children. You are given a stewardship of 18 years especially under your authority, 
But fatherhood continues. You never stop being a father. It continues, even as our children would be adults, even as they would come to us for counsel. But it's these first 18 years that are the formative years. And we have to remember that a child is like a fragile flower, easily crushed by harshness or exasperating, so that the child loses heart. Or it could be something that could flourish into something absolutely beautiful that is an example to others and glorifying to God. And that brings joy to parents. It's more than just saying, um, no, child, you can't ride the bike without a helmet. You need to put on a helmet. It's the positive instruction of the cultivating of the minds. It's the, it's the Deuteronomy 6 training as you go along the way in the morning, during the day, and even in the evening. Even grandfathers have a, a role. I mean, there's a supportive role, isn't there? To, to bring a word, to bring some counsel, to, to whatever influence there is, to bring godly influences as you are able. But this training, what Paul is speaking of here, it's nurturing, it's nurture, it's bringing them up, it's building them up, and the instruction of the Lord. It, it speaks of both encouragement unto good things, but warning of evil things. And those are sandwiched together so that they are positively given. Now, the average child, if they're in public school, um, will have about 12,000 hours of instruction through the course of the, the public school. You can't think that one hour a week in a worship service, or maybe one hour in a uh, Sunday school class, is enough to counter all of that. Some homeschool, that's good. There's still going to be outside influences, and we have a responsibility to counter whatever negativity may come with positive training and encouragement. To put it another way, we have the responsibility to put on the lens of the gospel, to teach our children to see things as they really are. Sadly, though, many fathers are too busy this type of training. Many fathers are, 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 are MIA. They don't spend the time that they should. You must spend time with your children if you will instruct them to the biblical standards and commands that are given to us. You must take time with them. How much time do you spend with your children in a week? It's something to ask yourself. Yeah, I, I know, some work long hours, some have to get tied up at the office late or whatever, but these things should be balanced out so that throughout the course of a week, that's why I didn't say a day, each day is different, right? We, there's providential hindrances and so forth. But over the course of a week or over the course of a month, to examine how much time are you really spending with your children. May I encourage you, fathers among us, to examine yourselves and prioritize Get out your planner and look at the next four weeks. Pinpoint certain days and block it out. No meetings, no nothing, no outside distractions, no email, no newspaper, no TV, no nothing. It's just time with me and my children. Schedule it, because if you don't, something else will fill the schedule. Right, dads? Isn't that true? It does happen that way. Schedule it. Purpose to lead your family in family worship. A simple reading of a chapter of the Bible, praying, singing a song, 
something that unifies the family together, that we will honor God in this house. It's not enough to go to church one day a week. You, as the priest of your home, as the father in the home, need to take the lead on these things. Do not just hand it off to your wife. Leave the children. No, this is your responsibility. Two, three times a week, five days a week, whatever works for you. Plan family outings. Participate in church events. Picnics, community groups, all of these kinds of things. You are showing what's really important in your life as you would lead your family to these things. Play games with your children. Play catch with them. Take your kids out one-on-one on on dates and outings and, and seek to shepherd their heart and just actually sometimes just listen to what's going on in their lives so that you can come and bring some godly counsel and pray with your children. There's a contemporary Christian band called Casting Crowns, and I believe it's their first or second album. They had a song called American Dream, and I just want to read some of the lyrics here. Some of you might be familiar with this. It says, All work, no play, may have made Jack a doll boy, but all work, no God, has left Jack a lost soul. But he's moving full steam. He's chasing the American dream. He's going to give his family the finer things. That's the resolve. That's the deception. Then, goes on, not this time, son. I've no time to waste. Maybe tomorrow we'll have time to play. Then he slips into his new BMW and drives further and further and further away. So he works all day. He tries to sleep at night. He tells himself things are get better. They'll get better in time. So he works to build, and he builds with his own two hands, and he pours all that he has in a castle made with sand. But the wind and the rain are coming and crashing in. Time will tell just how long his kingdom stands. His American dream is beginning to seem more like a nightmare. With every passing day, Daddy, can you come to my game? Oh, baby, please don't work late. Another wasted weekend and they slip away. It goes on and on until the very end. It just says, all they really wanted was you. Not the big house. Not the extra cars. Not the fancy vacations. They wanted you. It's convicting. We need to examine ourselves. We need to balance. We we need to have balanced time with our families. And, And what Paul says is we are to discipline our children too. Now, that's not just using the rod. Yes, the proverb says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. That is one part of it. But there's also the positive training that is needed here. Um, Webster's actually says the word discipline describes training that corrects, molds, and perfects the mental faculties or moral character. We read from Hebrews how God deals with us as sons. And if we're not sons, we're illegitimate children. But notice at the end of that passage, it says the result of discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what we want for our children. The word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 is the act of providing guidance for responsible living and upbringing and training. And so as we would train, as we would come alongside, and as we would instruct, and as sometimes we have to point out their sin, be careful that you don't acknowledge your own sin in pointing out their sin. Be careful that you don't examine yourself before you go and, 
and pick the splinter out of their eye while having a log in your own eye. You will teach your kids to be hypocrites. Be humble. Be willing to confess your sin when you've blown it, when you've been angry, when you've talked me, whatever the situation. Be humble in that regard. A while back, I told you a story, a sad story, true story of a, a man on his way to work, and he had the responsibility of dropping little, his little daughter off at the daycare. But he got distracted listening to the radio on the phone and all of that, and he forgot, and he parked his car, and the little girl died from excessive heat being left in the car. That painful memory will be with that man absolutely forever. But the sad thing is, is that there's many other fathers forgetting their children deliberately, abandoning them completely, pursuing their own selfish desires, selfish desires of sexual affairs and so forth, and chasing money, chasing all of these kinds of things and any number of distractions. And they're leaving their children left without the guidance that only a dad can give. And you fathers, I have a word for you, especially those of you who have sons. You have a responsibility to train your young men, your, your boys, to be men. They need to see the positive example from you of hard work, of being diligent, being faithful to the things that God has called you to do. If you're a jellyfish flowing and rolling around with every wind of doctrine, with no commitment to the things of God, with no commitment to your job, that is the kind of man that you are raising. And I submit to you that so many of the young men in this world are nothing more than boys. They're just, they're, they just have facial hair now, but they're just boys. They haven't been trained to work hard. They haven't been trained to prepare to support for a wife and for a family. This is often linked to failure of fathers. In, in all of our instruction, again, keep it positive. Keep it laced with the Gospel because that has to be present there so that your children do not lose heart. Don't provoke your children unto anger. How does that happen? Teasing them, making fun of them in front of others, favoring another sibling above them. Inconsistent standards. One day you allow this, the next day the wall comes down and so forth. You need to be consistent in these things. Make sure the boundaries are clearly set forth. Don't humiliate them. Don't embarrass them. Don't go into a rage with harsh, angry words. These are things that are vitally important. And as you train your children, they need to see that you love Jesus Christ more than anything. They need to see that you have a commitment to the Lord Jesus. They need to see you reading your Bible they need to see you praying. You need to be, show this as an example. And, and I submit to you that as you are in love with Christ, as you do fill yourself with the Word of God, and as you meditate on the cross and all of its beauty and what that means for us as redeemed sinners, that will regulate your training of your children. Secondly, though, if you have children... They were birthed to you <laughs> from a woman, which is most likely your wife. And I submit to you that this is very important. Model biblical husbandry with your children. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. And back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, there's five verbs that Paul uses here. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she would be holy and blameless. The five verbs that demonstrates Christ's commitment to his bride, the church, are love, gave himself, sanctify, cleanse, and then present. And I just want to look at each of these just very briefly. First of all, love is a real abused word, isn't it? Don't get your definition of love from Hollywood or from the television set. Look into the Bible. It means a a sacrificial type of love. It's something that's unconditional. It's a commitment. It's not the gushy-mushy kind of feeling that you get, okay? It's a commitment to have affection for, and that's how Christ loved the church. This is the model, this is the ground that we have. That Jesus Christ gave Himself for us. He stood in our place. That's the model that we are to present. It's not the idea of, well, if you're nice to me, honey, I'll be nice to you. It's not this kind of thing. No, it's something that's unconditional. No matter how your wife treats you, you have a responsibility to love her and to treat her with kindness and to love her sacrificially, unconditionally. Love strives for the highest good in the other person, unconditionally. It's completely selfless. And nowhere is the Word of God defined love as taking advantage of others for personal gain. And again, here, yes, I fall short. I do not do this all the time as I should. Okay, I'll be the first to admit it. I know that we all fall short. because I, I just know that from speaking with many of you. But we need to think for a minute and consider how did Jesus love the church? How was it? There He is in eternity past. Perfect communion and union with the other members of the Trinity. He comes and leaves that perfect situation. He comes and incarnates and comes to this earth and enters a sin-cursed world. He lives in poverty. He pours Himself out for others throughout His earthly ministry. He endures the insults and the cruel mock trials and so forth. And ultimately, He's thrown on a wooden cross and crucified. And there on the cross, the Father, according to the plan of God, pours out His wrath upon His own Son for you if you're a Christian. That's the length. That's the the, the depth of the love that Jesus had for us. Of course, rising victoriously from the grave and now sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us as our great High Priest. That's the measure of love. No, we'll never completely fulfill, but that's the model. That's the goal. And fathers, you need to model this to your children. Your children will get married someday. More than likely. Nine out of ten of them will, at least. Jesus in His high priestly prayer says, for their sake I consecrate Myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We're to wash our wives with the Word. We're to wash her with the Word, it says. And this is vitally important so that she can have that spiritual growth. Cleansing her for the purpose of sanctification. So, in a very real sense, us men, the husbands, our role is redemptive. And that we wash her with the Word. We remind her of the truths of the Gospel to give her hope and to give her encouragement to see to it that she has a healthy diet of the Word of God. 
but also to display the gospel, which is the central message of the gospel, of the word of God, rather. You see, you have the responsibility to taking the lead, to finding a church that preaches the gospel and going and committing yourself and being faithful to that. Don't leave it up to your wife. Don't be a purple four ball that flips a coin every Sunday and I think I might come this day or that day. Be committed. Demonstrate this. Obey this mandate that you have a responsibility if you're married to see that your wife is cared for and has a regular diet of the Word of God. Pray with her. Remind her of the promises of God after a long, weary day. Very important. And some of you men are not married yet. You, You want to be married soon. You need to look at yourself. Do I have a practice of having a healthy diet of the Word of God now? Because getting married doesn't all of a sudden make you, you know, whiz-bang to where all of a sudden now you have an increased appetite for the Word of God. That should be present now in your life. That will be even a drawing factor of a godly young woman to see that you fear God and that you're committed to His Word. Shepherd your wife. Discuss with her their struggles. How you can pray. When's the last time you asked your wife, how can I pray for you, honey? What's going on in your life? Besides the superficial, all the stuff, all the busyness that we know is going on, how can I pray for you? Can I challenge you to do that today? We have a responsibility to do that. And then in verse 27, he says, so that he might present, this is Christ, present himself to himself, the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle whatsoever, to be pure and unblemished. This is the eschatological motivation that when we see him, when he appears, we shall be like him. And I love that the birth, the NIV, the ESV, they have that to present the church and all of her radiance and splendor and all of her glory. These different terms are all trying to communicate the truth of that. And the implication is that we should express appreciation for our wives. We have a huge responsibility. We are instruments in our wife's spiritual growth and to take that seriously. And then, if that's the case, and we have this responsibility, how we need to understand the truth of the Gospel. How we need to understand how guilt can be removed. How peace can come. How we confess our sins having short accounts with God and with man. We need to model this. We need to remember through the lens of the Gospel that we deserve nothing and yet was given salvation. Full and free. Not just a little salvation, but full salvation. Each child of God. So that should moderate our patience and our love to our wives. But thirdly, in a more general sense, under this head of a father's walk, Men are called to live pure and holy lives for Christ's sake. You see, your family's greatest need is your holiness. Your family's greatest need is for you to be a godly father who fears the Lord. And so first of all, personally, examining yourself and checking yourself to see where you're at. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Purity. Purity in the mind. Purity in the heart. 
purity in life, purity with what you look at on a computer screen. You have a responsibility. This is the will of God. So many people, oh, if only I knew the will of God. Here it is. Here's one of them. Your sanctification. Your holiness. Sexual immorality is the the Greek word pornea. It means all types of sexual sin. Any type of sexual sin outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So your sexual purity, man, is not optional. You must be pure. You are commanded by the Word of God to be pure. And if you've taken a wife, you have even added responsibility to her to keep her pure. But yet, in our culture these days, it's all about instant gratification. It's all about clicking this, typing that, going here, looking at this, or whatever. And it's wrong. And it needs to be proclaimed from the rooftops. So many think a little casual sex here and there is just it's like going to the movies. It's just another form of entertainment. No. And, and, and there's so many men that they will, they'll say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife. Are you lusting in your mind? It's Jesus, what does He say in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says that if you've thought it, you're guilty of it. So we need to guard our minds. We need to renew our minds, as Paul says. And look, turn back with me to Job 31. Right before Psalms. Job 31. <clears throat> Job has all of these so-called unfortunate events <laughs> that have come in his, came his way. His friends come. They try to more or less, accuse him. It's, if only you were more holy, if only you didn't do this, Job, these things wouldn't happen. But look at what Job says in verse 1 of chapter 31. He asserts his integrity here. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He's declaring his purity. His purity in his mind. And look down in verse 4. Does he not see my ways? and the number of all of my steps. He's made a covenant with his eyes because he knows that God is sovereign and that God sees every single thought and intention of the heart. That he sees it all. And he's made a covenant asserting his integrity here to his friends. God sees all my ways. That is not an option. And how some of us maybe need to have that commitment. And I'm thinking particularly of pornography. This industry that continues to grow. An absolutely foul industry. Pornography is like a poison. It is something serious. It will harm you. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not touching anybody. I'm not catching any diseases. It will scar you. It will harm you. To think that there's more money spent on pornography than all the football and baseball and basketball leagues combined. Every second, $3,000 is spent on pornography. That's about $200,000 a minute. That's about a million dollars per five minutes. That's about $6 million since we began this sermon has just been spent on pornography. Okay, There is a problem with that. 
And how dreadful it is when men who take the name of Christ feel they can dabble a little here and dabble a little there. Wake up, men! You can't look at that stuff. Purify your mind. Mortify that desire. Go to your wife and ask for accountability. Put filters on your... Do whatever you have to do. I've been in enough counseling sessions to know that the scars are deep and they will last a lifetime. Regrets of men. And so, determine now, young men, never to look at this stuff. And you men who still have a chance to cut it off, cut it off now, because God is not pleased with that. And to take the name that I can look at that every day, but I'm covered with the blood, you are deceiving yourself. And you will hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. You played with your lust constantly, I never knew you. But come, confessing, repenting, crying out, He will forgive you. Pluck out right eyes, cut off right hands, whatever lengths you have to go to, as it were, as Jesus says. You see, it affects your closest relationships. It's a cheap counterfeit of what God intended for sex. And fathers, you also have a responsibility to protect your family, to protect your children who are on computers. By the time they're my kids' age, they're, they're, unfortunately, all their work is on computers now throughout the day, and so it's that much harder. But to check history, to be on top of things, to have filters, to have protections, it's vitally important. And then you fathers who have daughters, you have a huge responsibility to protect her until that day would come when she would be given to that person that would be her husband. Paul tells Timothy, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. I don't find it enjoyable to talk about these things. We don't talk about it every sermon, but it's something that needs to be addressed. Well, a father's walk, instructing, nurturing their children, displaying love and shepherding the mother of your children, and then remaining pure, especially sexually pure, and growing in holiness. And secondly, and more briefly, a father's talk. A father's talk should match his walk. It's one thing to to do certain things, but if your words are contradicting that, it's empty. John Stott said, speech is a wonderful gift of God. It is one of our human capacities which reflects our likeness to God. God Himself speaks. The whole animal creation does not speak. They communicate together. But we speak. Only humans can speak. And so, we need to think before we speak. We need to put a guard over our mouth. We need to be careful what, we, what type of conversation we engage in. The psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul addresses this very squarely where he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification. And so we need to be very careful that there's not rotten words, that there's not just careless words that come out. Even this past week, it was brought to my attention that, that I hurt somebody with my words some time back, and I had to seek that person's forgiveness. 
We need to keep short accounts. We need to be very careful with what comes out of our mouth. And, and here where it says, let no unwholesome word, it's literally a rotten, stinking, foul word. And it can come under several different categories. I think of slander. Talking behind somebody's back. Backbiting. Gossip. Cursing. Being overly critical. Telling a crude joke. Double innuendos. Being argumentative, being rude, disrespectful, boasting, all of these things are displeasing to God. And the whole idea that we have freedom of speech as a Christian, you are not free to just say whatever comes into your mind. Put a guard over the door of your lips, as David says. James says the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. We need to guard our speech. Wasted words, careless words, diarrhea of the mouth, the pastoral epistles speak to that. Lying, exaggeration, coloring the truth to make yourself look good. These things are wrong. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. Proverbs 10 and verse 31. You children, guarding your words because talking back to your parents, being disrespectful to them, muttering behind their backs is wrong. Even among your friends, uh, making fun of certain other kids and your peers is all wrong. Our words can hurt. The tongue is like a sword, it says in the Proverbs, that lashes like the thrust of a sword. We need to realize that. Be careful with what we say with our words. In counseling, many, many times people have brought up stuff from a year ago, five years ago, sometimes 30 years ago, Really? Really? It's still bothering you. It still hurts you from that long ago. Words can hurt and they can scar. And ultimately we know all speech comes from our hearts, right? Jesus said in Matthew 15, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and it is those that defile a man. Secondly, purpose to build others up with your words. Remember, this is a gift that we have, that we can speak words. And so, rather than seeing how cool we can be by slamming others, purpose to build others up. I meant that derogatory. <laughs> but to build others up with your words. To this, we can provide words that are pure and helpful and pleasing to God. And, and the idea here of building up is the same as, as the church being built up. A spiritual strengthening. Think of words that are constructive, that are uplifting. Not Again, not flattery, not telling half-truths, not just telling somebody what they want to hear, but positively finding the good and communicating that. All too often we can be cold and insensitive to the needs of those around us, to the needs of those even in our own family. And the Hebrews says, encourage one another day after day lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we need encouragement. We need to encourage one another. This takes work. You can't just say what's on your mind. And fathers, you have an extra responsibility to do this. You can't take back your words. Once the words come out, they've got wings and they're gone. You can't shove them back down. They're gone. It's already been done. Sometimes it's good just to remain quiet. We need to think about our words. Sometimes we were talking about this in our community group, but as we were talking about how we should encourage one another, but 
even with Facebook and email, there's things that you'll type in an email that you probably wouldn't say face-to-face to a person. We need to guard those words. They're coming from you. And then thirdly here, seek to build others up in light of the need. Look, at if you're there on Ephesians 4.29, it says, only such word is good for edification, that is a building up, according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. There's something to be said for having the right word to say at the right time. This is the motivating purpose of this positive exhortation. And the best example is really our Lord Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 50, in the prophetic first person of the first servant song, he says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. You see that? The tongue of disciples that I might be able to sustain the weary one with a word. And fathers, this is where we must excel. This is when we need to know the right thing to say at the right time. When you come home from work and your wife is exhausted and the kids have been behaving badly all day long to come and to give the right word at the right time. Not to say, well, my day was rough too. That doesn't encourage her. (laughs) But to come alongside as the leader in your home to sympathize with her, to pray with her, to remind her of the promises. And it's likewise with, with your kids. Maybe they're disappointed over They've spent hours and hours on an exam and found out that they only got a C or something along those lines. And to be able to express appreciation for how hard they work and that the Lord knows and that He's in control of that. Like apples of gold and settings of silver, is a word spoken in the right circumstance. Proverbs 25, verse 11. Purpose to breathe grace to those around you. Obviously, in your immediate family, purpose to breathe grace. And that's really, I think Ken Sandy put it that way, so that it will give grace to those that hear. And so it's breathing. Just as we breathe, we're breathing grace with the words we choose to say. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each one. How can we do this? Fill your mind with truth. Not garbage. Not not junk food. (laughs) You know, not TV and commercials and this and that. Fill your mind with truth. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Another version says dwell on these things. Those are the things to dwell on. And then meditate and dwell on the Gospel and the beauty of the Gospel and the beauty of Christ and what He's done for us. So, today we've talked about a father's walk. We've talked about a father's talk. The applications go beyond fathers, most certainly. But just a couple of comments as we conclude. I hope that you will realize, each of you who are fathers, the areas that you fall short. I hope you don't walk out of here and say, well, those were all good things, and I'm just so glad I excel in every area that was mentioned today. I hope you don't walk out like that. We need to remain humble. We need to be humble about our sin. We need to admit our own struggle with our own sin. We need to be real with one another and especially with our families. 
but to be reminded that we have a great high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. And to the degree that we may have a weakness here, a weakness there, that we know that we can cry out to Him and that He hears us to give us grace at just the right time, according to Hebrews 4. Cry to Him for change. Maybe there's things that have been mentioned today where you realize that things need to change, things need to improve. And the purpose is not to to break you down. The purpose is to encourage you to go to the One that can affect change. The One that is sovereign. The One that, that with your commitment to repent and to grow in these areas, He would be pleased to bless that. Spend time with your family. Spend time with your kids. That, this is why I love the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is... You know, the, the rest of the Lord's Day, either we're with people, we're with brothers and sisters, or we're just with ourselves and we actually have that time together. There's no distractions and there's no TVs and sports on or any of that. We're just together. Praying together. Studying the Scriptures together. Resting together. Spending time together. It's the Gospel that motivates us to fulfill our high calling of fatherhood. And then keep short accounts. When you know that you've sinned against your wife or one of your children and they're old enough to understand, seek forgiveness. Keep short accounts with God and with men. I can't emphasize that enough. Deuteronomy 6, I made reference to it a few times, but the mandate, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You see where they're supposed to be first? On your heart first, men. Then you shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. We need to be fathers like our Heavenly Father that are gentle that are ready to receive our children when they realize that they've sinned and they confess their sin, that there's restoration that takes place. Vitally important. I don't have time to go into the whole the fifth commandment, but we have a responsibility even as adult men, if you have fathers, to honor your fathers. Right? It doesn't stop when you're 19 or whatever when you move out. To honor your mother and father. Paul says the first commandment with a promise. Back in 1992, the Summer Olympic Games were in Barcelona. and There was celebration and tragedy. One by one, the teams would enter the stadium paraded by cheers and so forth. 65,000 people gathered. But in one section of the Olympic Stadium, shock and sadness fell as Peter Karnoff father of United States swimmer Ron Karnoff was stricken with a fatal heart attack and died. Five days later, Ron showed up to his race wearing his dad's hat, which he carefully set aside before the competition began. Why the hat? It was the swimmer's tribute to his dad, whom he described as his best friend. One that would take him fishing. One that would spend time with him. One of which he would wear that hat when they did things together. And wearing the hat was Ron's way of honoring his dad for standing beside him and encouraging him and guiding him through those years of youth. Fathers, what will your children remember of you once you're gone, once they're moved out? 
What will they remember? Will it be the time spent with them? And it doesn't have to be Disneyland or a Padre game. It's just time, remember? All they really wanted was you. What will they remember? Or will it be you not being there for them? I've alluded to Christ and His saving work several times through this sermon, but if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that your sin is an affront to a holy God. And if you do not repent and turn from your sin and embrace Christ by faith, you will spend an eternity in hell. Beg for a new heart. Beg for transformation. See a beauty in Christ that He would die for sinners like you've never seen before. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the practical instruction that Your Word has. And Lord, the instruction that we've heard for fathers and for men. I pray, Lord, that You'd strengthen each family in this congregation. pray that You'd purify this church. I pray that You'd build up this church for Your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.